Good morning, folks. Uh, such a pleasure to have me back. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Good morning. One of the interesting consequences of the Israeli complexity, which I tried to call CAP 67, was that the Israeli conversation changed. What does that mean? What happened? Well, for many, many years, if you'd meet an Israeli and you'd ask them, him or her, hey, why is it that Israel doesn't have a constitution? You sh we should have a constitution. Part of the founding documents of Israel, we, uh, there's an obligation to create a constitution and we've never agreed on the Constitution. So I wonder why. So you ask Israel, why are we dealing with that issue? And the classic answer would always be, we should deal with that issue, and we will deal with that issue. But you know when will be the right time to deal with that issue? After we end the conflict with the Palestinians. We'll just wait a bit, resolve the whole issue, the Israeli-Arab conflict, and then we'll deal with the problem of the Constitution. Hey, why is it in Israel there are such growing gaps between the rich and the poor? You're right. We should deal with that issue. We should really deal with that issue. Let's just, you know, when the conflict ends, we'll deal with that issue too. Hey, why is it that Orthodox rabbis own Judaism in Israel? That's a terrible problem. You're right. We should definitely deal with that issue. You know when we'll deal with that issue? After we end the conflict, we'll deal with that issue too. So, as a result, as a result, to say, um, I heard everyone say it this way, as a result, the conflict was holding all issues, all problems as hostages. It used to be that the conflict only had a monopoly over Israeli political passion. If you would do like any round over issues of peace and war, would have tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people coming to that round. Israelis are passionate about the conflict. When it comes to settlements, yes or no, evacuation, yes or no, peace or war, these are questions that Israelis were very passionate about, and they speak about, yell about rally about this was these were burning issues in Israel. But what if, what happens if you organize a rally about social justice? Or the distorted relationship between synagogue and state in Israel? These are issues Israelis have opinions about but not a lot of passion about. This was a situation for many years. There used to be a joke in Israel that um you see you organize a rally about issues concerning the conflict, to stop Oslo or to continue Oslo, to evacuate settlements or to withdraw from Gaza. All these rallies drew tens of thousands of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. But if you organize a rally, a protest, on issues concerning social justice, you'd get five people. <laughs> In a good day, six people. Oh, by the way, always the same people. There was a joke in Israel that if you organize a rally 
for about concerning the conflict. So in the end of the, you know, the 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 ad in the paper, it would say the bus will leave seven o'clock and go to the protest. The buses will, and if it was for social justice, it would say the taxi cab. <laughs> The motorbike is leaving. So people, this, I mean, people cared, but they didn't care enough. There was no, the conflict owned Israeli political passion. Then something happens in the summer of 2011. The summer of 2011 is a moment in the history of Israeli political awareness. Something happens there. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis hit the roads, move, literally move into tents. And what are they fighting for for the first time? Ha'am Doresh Sedek Chevati. The people are demanding social justice. Something now, so why is it that suddenly, now these protests were very interesting protests. And a lot was written about them. For example, there was a lot of passion and not a lot of violence. Actually, barely any violence. Usually, protests in the world, the more passionate it is, the more violence there is. In Israel, this is also an Israeli startup. Very passionate protests, no violence at all. That asymmetry is very interesting and very Israeli, and we're very proud of the fact that we have very passionate protests, and yet, Barely, no violence. This was the summer of 2011. Ha'am Doresh, the people are demanding social justice. So what happens? Why did this really change? Why did this really start fighting for an issue that's not related to the conflict? There's irony here. We always thought we'll start speaking and thinking and fighting for other issues once we end the conflict. But summer 2011, it seems like Israelis started fighting for other issues, not because we ended the conflict, but because many Israelis realized that maybe we can't end the conflict. Maybe, you know, so many Israelis were trapped in perplexity. If we stay in the West Bank, we're threatening our majority. We won't be a Jewish state anymore. We leave the West Bank, we threaten our security. We won't be a stable state anymore. What do we do? Let's demand social justice. <laughs> That's the solution. <laughs> we change the topic. Avoidance is the best way to deal with problems. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that one of the important consequences of Catch 67, of the new Israeli perplexity, is that the conflict stopped owning the Israeli conversation. And that suddenly, Israelis started caring about other issues. The conflict suddenly wasn't the only issue, it became one of the issues. Now, what, what, was the, what was the protest in 2011 about? It was about a strong sense and that in Israel there is unexplainable gaps between the rich and the poor. And it's not only gaps in money, it's especially gaps in power. And there is a very dominant theory in Israel. There's about 18 
19 families to have effective control over 60% of the Israeli economy. So you have, now these families are called in the Israeli, in the social protests, what are they called? These people are called the tycoons. Ha tycoonim. And it's a small group that has effectively control over 60% of the Israeli economy because they own companies that own companies that own companies. Effectively, you can't really get a job without being somehow related to one of these tycoons. The air we breathe is controlled by these tycoons. The, the, the housing rate is controlled by these tycoons. The, the, the level of living is controlled by these tycoons. And the people hit the road saying this is wrong. Saying we want our country back. We want our economy back. We want our markets back. That was what summer 2011 was about. But there's, there are other tycoons, other forms of tycoons, other forms of minorities that have a disproportionate control over parts, the other parts of Israel. Ultra-Orthodoxy in Israel, Ultra-Haredim in Israel, they're about 9-10% of Israel. And they own probably 90% of Judaism in Israel. I would say that just like you have 19 families, that disproportionate control over the economy. You also have a certain community, which is an important community, and there are brothers, and we should respect them and appreciate them, but they have disproportionate control over the market of ideas. They're a minority, and yet they have the majority of the power regarding the Judaism. They're a minority, and yet they get to decide Who's, who gets to be called a rabbi and who's not a rabbi? Who's a convert? What is considered a kosher conversion and what is not a kosher conversion? And who does the kotel belong to? I'm waiting for the summer where Israelis will go back, back to tents, back to the roads, back to protests, and say, we want our Judaism back. We want the tycoons of Judaism. We want the power from the tycoons of Judaism. Now, why is it that a minority has a majority of the power when it comes to Jewish issues? Now, it is this parallel to the question, how does a minority of families have control over economic issues? These are two big questions. In summer 2011, Israelis asked the first question. We started to care about the price of living in Israel. When are Israelis going to ask the second question? And here, I think it's important to realize that the fact that there are, there's a minority that has a majority of the power of this issue, we should blame that minority. They're doing what they think should be done and they have mostly good intentions. The question is not why this minority control have a majority of the power when it comes to Jewish issues. The question is, why the majority of the Israelis give them that power? Why do they give them that power? So, this goes down to some of the founding moments of Israel and Zionism. Is this good? 
because they want me to wear this, and I feel uncomfortable with Now, this has everything to do with the way the founding fathers of Israel understood Zionism. How they understood, they figured that, um, that Judaism is interesting, it's nice, it's not our thing. The Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox, they really care about this. Give them Judaism, we'll take care of the rest. And this is a paradox that many American Jews don't always realize. Is that the reason why Orthodox rabbis control Judaism in, in Israel, it's not because Israelis are so Jewish, it's because they're not. It's not because they're so religious. It's because they're not. You understand this paradox? If secular Israelis would feel like Judaism belongs to them, they'd care enough about Judaism, they wouldn't hand it away. You see, Israel is controlled by orthodoxy not because Israelis are so religiously fundamental. It's not. It's because they're not. It's because they couldn't care less. It's because if you make a list, I mean, most Israelis say, yeah, it's not right that the rabbinate controls Judaism in Israel. In the list of my concerns, that's number 23. In a good day. <laughs> the conflict is number one. Educate. There's many issues. This is not it. This is barely an issue. This is barely an issue. Israelis don't go vote for these issues. A part of it would say, listen, we will reform the distorted relationship between synagogue and state. Vote for us. We'll do that. People, yes, but what do you think about security? And Palestinians and settlements. Economy. This is not something, and why don't Israelis care about this? And oh, and what, by the way, and the old Orthodox, what do they get, what do they go vote for? Only about this. Rest of Israel will take care of economy. They'll take care of security. They'll think about the conflict. We're voting for one thing only, and that's why you could have a a minority of the, of the votes and a majority of the power. Because you're focusing your political passion if you're formating only on this issue. And the rest are not. As a result, even though you're a minority, you have a majority of the power over this issue. If we want Judaism back, the only way to do that is not to hate the Haredim, not to change the Haredim, not to fight the Haredim, not to do anything negative, but to go the other way around. We need Israelis to care more about their Judaism. That's the only, and which takes me, now we have to go deeper into this question, why is it that Israelis did this trade-off? That they felt like, we should take care of security, the big Judaism belongs, let's, they care about it, let them take care about this. Let's, let, let, get through this. Why is it that has everything to do with the ethos of Zionism? I'm going back to Theodore to a very important disagreement that what is Zionism supposed to be about? A disagreement between Herzl, Theodore Herzl, and Echad Ha'am. Ashok Ginsberg, Echad Ha'am. According to Herzl, what is Israel supposed 
to achieve. Yesterday, Tom Walker actually discussed this, uh, supposed to lead to the end of anti-Semitism, but the reason why we have to put it in anti-Semitism is because Hilton understood that anti-Semitism is extremely dangerous. And he had a very interesting observation. In the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, most people in Europe saw the world the following way. In Western Europe, Jews achieved liberation and emancipation. In Eastern Europe, they're second-class citizens. In Western Europe, they can learn wherever they want to learn, and they can have whatever job they want to have, and, no and they can live wherever they want to live, and there are no real official legal restrictions on Jews. In Eastern Europe, they can't live where they want to live, they're supposed to live in a certain zone, and they can't learn where they want to learn, and there's jobs that they can't have, they're second-class citizens. And the great hope was Western European Jews achieved redemption, liberation, equality, all in one word, emancipation. And will the liberation of Western Europe move to Eastern Europe? People in the East were just waiting for the redemption of the West to move to the East. An interesting way to think about Jewish history is that in 1881-1882, when Jews realized this is not going to happen, that because of pogroms and other things, this is not going to happen. Redemption is not moving from west to east. So many Eastern European Jews, I'm sure, many of the parents and great-grandparents of many people are sitting here, made a different decision. Instead of waiting for redemption to come from the west, let's pack our bags and move to the West. And that's how you guys got here. <laughs> so that was a notion, the West, that's where redemption is. If, it, if redemption, if the West won't expand, we'll move to the West. And that's how the great wave of immigration from 1882 till, till, the, till the, 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 the first part of the 20th century Millions of Jews immigrated. That's Hevitzen had a completely different understanding. Hevitzen said, "Where the real problem and real threat to the Jews is, is not where they're discriminated, but where they're not discriminated against." The real problem, the real danger, says Hevitzen. He writes in 1896-1897, comes from the West. Why? Because he says, legally, you can't discriminate. Jews. Legally, you can't create a society with a hierarchy where Jews are second-class citizens. Legally, that's not allowed. But the fact that the laws changed, did the emotions change? No. Now what happens when there's an asymmetry between the legal system and the emotional system? We are not allowed to discriminate against Jews, and yet you can't stand Jews. What happens? So Theodore Hilton says, what's going to happen is that it's not you're repressing these emotions of hate. It's not that they're going to go away. Something else is going to happen. They're going to accumulate and eventually explode. And in a Freudian intuition without ever reading Freud, and in a prophetic intuition, Theodore Hilton said, the catastrophe will come from Western Europe. He writes in 18, 
And he writes this, he says this to the Rothschilds in 1896, he writes this in 1897, he realizes that the real problem is not Eastern Europe, where the second class citizens, but in the Western Europe. Europe. The emancipation, according to Herzl, was not the solution, it was, it was the problem. And he writes, and, and so he, he saw a catastrophe coming, ironically, as a result of emancipation, of repression of anti-Semitism. So he sees this coming. And he realizes that there's a real problem. And no one else is seeing this. And he sees this, he feels this, he writes this, and he also knows what's the solution to the problem. The fact that Jews are threatened. What's the solution? A state for the Jews. That's how it's has a completely different reading, not of the solution, but of the problem. The reason why there's Zionisms, why there's Herzl's Zionism and the Chabad Zionism, it's not that they have the same problem, different solutions. They have, they don't have the same problems to begin with. According to Chabad it's not that Jews are threatened. Judaism is threatened. And Echadah has the following prophetic understanding. He says, and this is Echadah like in a, in, a, in a nutshell. To understand Echadah, we have to understand the theory of secularization that was intuitive in the 19th century all the way to the 60s in the 20th century. The theory of secularization is the following theory, that modernization leads Secularization. That just like we meant for medicine of the Middle Ages to modern medicine, and we meant from politics of the Middle Ages, like monarchy to democracy, just like we made these important moves into modernity, also theology is going to make a move. And the move of modern theology is the death of God. Meaning, the more modern we get, the more secular, the more secular society will be. According to this theory, if you're in the end of the 19th century and you meet a religious person, what do you think in your mind? What do you think? How interesting! How nice! How sweet! A representative of the past and the present has no future. This is going to disappear. And by the way, there is a theory that one of the reasons why Ben-Gurion gave orthodoxy control over Judaism was because it was sure orthodoxy, like any form of religion, is going to disappear. And if you remember something, it's very easy to be generous towards a phenomenon that's going to end. It's very, yeah, okay, no problem. Yeah. By the way, the Chazoyish, the representative of ultra-orthodoxy, when he saw Ben-Gurion, you know what he thought? Secularism is going to end. This was a deal between two people that both looked at each other and thought the exact same thing. <laughs> the other one, she's not going to last. So, let's put this together. Secularization is going to bring to the end of religion. This is what intellectuals in Europe believed in. It, 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 they more, it was just obvious to them. It was what they believed in this. This was obvious. That's assumption number one. Assumption number two 
Judaism is a religion. Let's put this together. <laughs> if religion is going to end and Judaism is a religion, therefore, Judaism is going to end. Chada'am tells Hedzim, you didn't get it. It's not that Jews are threatened. Judaism is. How can we protect Judaism from modernity? Then he realizes there is an answer. There actually is a way to protect Judaism from modernity. What's the answer? Not to modernize Judaism. Modernity is going to destroy religion. So let's just not be there when modernity comes. I found out this when there was the, um, the hurricane in Florida. And the governor of Florida came out saying, we should all leave Miami, right? That was shocking, because usually the role of the governor is to calm people down. Everything's okay. <laughs> Just leave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm sure we have our relatives there. <laughs> Hurricanes want to come, destroy everything. There's only one question. Will we be there when it comes? Modernity is a hurricane. And it will destroy everything. But will Judaism be there when it comes? Ultra-Orthodoxy was created in order to protect Judaism from the hurricane of modernity. Let us escape modernity. We will destroy everything, but not us, because we will not be there. Chadam realizes that's a smart reaction to modernity. There's only one problem. If we shut down Judaism in order to protect it from modernity, it will create a distorted version of Judaism. So we're stuck with two bad options. Either we create a modern Judaism and then lose our Judaism, or we close our Judaism, distort our Judaism, and save our Judaism. What's better, or actually, what's worse? What do you rather? A great Judaism that has no future or a Judaism that has a future but is completely distorted. So this was, Echadam says, there is an answer to this question. What's the answer to this question? There is a possibility to create a Judaism that's not distorted, that's progressive, that's liberal, that's open, and it has a future. How can we pull this off? Let's create an environment where people speak Hebrew, they interact almost only with Jews, the threat of assimilation doesn't exist. And there they can be as open, liberal, progressive as they can want. Modernize it's the state of Israel is Judaism's great chance to modernize Judaism without losing Judaism, without threatening Judaism. So we have two problems. Herzl's problem, Echadaam's problem, and two solutions. We have to, in order to save the Jews, we need the state of Israel. That's Hetzel. In order to save Judaism, we need Zionism. We need the state of Israel. And that would create different Zionistic passion. What is Zionism about? Protecting Jews or elevating Judaism? What is Zionism about? 
Now, out of these two paradigms, which paradigm became the dominant paradigm for Zionism? That's it. The labor, the late Ben Gurion, the founders of Israel, they all say Jews are under threat. There's anti-Semitism. There's the Muslims. The, the Islamic. There's all these threats. And we have to create a very strong country to protect Jews. Without Judaism, give it to the give it to the Orthodox. So that move, giving Judaism to ultra-Orthodoxy, is a result of Hell's paradigm of Zionism prevailing. Is this move clear? So the fact that Herzl's understanding of Zionism, the fact that it's intuitive to Israelis, and by the way, not only to Israelis, I think it's among Jews around the world, that the purpose of Israel is to be a safe refuge, is to protect Jews from anti-Semitism, from threats. That paradigm of Zionism is what enabled the founding fathers of Israel to give the tycoons of Judaism control over Judaism. You take care of Judaism, we'll take care of saving the Jews. And by the way, and why, why is it that Herzl's paradigm became the dominant intuitive paradigm for Israel and for Zionism? Why is it? Well, for good reasons. The notion that we need a strong state to protect Jews from anti-Semitism, well, it's partially because... Because there is... Well, let's put it this way. The Holocaust destroyed Echad on Zionism. When you realize how dangerous it is to be a Jew in this world, you don't have the privilege to say, let's elevate Judaism. It's about the Jews. It's about creating a strong country that will protect the Jews. And was, is Israel successful in implementing Herzl's paradigm? I think it was. Was it successful in implementing Echad Am's paradigm? It didn't even try. It created, you have two options. Either you don't care about your Judaism and you become modern, or you give Orthodox rabbis control over Judaism and you don't modernize your Judaism. So what's the big question you could ask yourselves today in light of this? Is there room for a paradigm shift in Zionism? Is there room, if Zionism goes through a paradigm shift from Herzl to Echadaan, we might find the next protests in Israel, okay, we want our Judaism back. We want to claim our Judaism. Because Zionism is not only about creating a strong state that protects the Jews, it's about creating a vibrant culture that elevates Judaism. But I want to do this paradigm. Now, now, what's blocking the paradigm shift? What's blocking the paradigm shift? What? A, a lot of things are blocking. But in fact, we're still threatened. We are, it's actually, you know, it's still, the Middle East is not exactly a soft, you know, you know what? No more threats. Let's think about culture now. Judaism. 
And the more we emphasize the threat, I think the most important representative of Herzlian paradigm today in Israel is the Prime Minister, is Netanyahu. When you say Iran, 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 what are you actually saying? You're saying we're still under threat, we have to have a strong country, strong military to meet that threat, and I think he's right. The question is, I think I have a different question. Maybe I have to think about Herzl and Am in a different way. Maybe instead of it being a dichotomy, what are you, Herzl or Am? Zionism is about protecting Jews or creating a new elevated Judaism. What is the doubt? Maybe we should see it differently, not as dichotomy, but as different stages in history. Maybe we need Herzl in Zionism. Survival Zionism. Zionism, its purpose is to prevent, prevent a catastrophe. Really? That, that's Zionism. And now, without neglecting that Zionism, to build the next, I'm thinking in Hebrew now, to come out the next floor on the building, the next stage of Zionism. Moving, not replacing Herzl, with the Chada'an, but building on the success of Herzlian Zionism, the next floor, the next stage in the Chada'an paradigm of Zionism. This is a good time for these thoughts. This is a good time for this reflection. Because Israel is entering its 70th year. And when we are entering this Yamatov, 70 years for Israel, celebrating the success of Israel, of building a strong country with a great economy that supports a very strong military that creates a very safe refuge for Jews, that can protect Jews around the world and Israel from threats. I think the conclusion is we shouldn't stop doing that, but that shouldn't define us. That should be something that we do. It shouldn't be who we are anymore. The next stage of Zionism could be Echad Ha'am Zionism. But for that, so changing the paradigm of Zionism, realizing that Zionism could be about solving the problem of Judaism, not only the problem of the Jews, is what we need in order for secular Israelis to realize that the, our role in this generation is to claim our Judaism back and to create a modern, progressive Judaism in Israel, in, according to Ahadam, the only place where the best form of Judaism also could have continuity, also could have a great future. Now there's only one question. How do you create a paradigm shift? <laughs> Any ideas? <laughs> What's important, by the way, paradigm, it's not, it's not neglecting the old narrative. We need to be strong. We need to protect ourselves. We still will have to send our children to the army when they're 18 for three years. And if they're officers, for four years. And then to do Miluim a month. This will continue. But there is a difference between a Zionism that's 
has to do something and it becomes that. It becomes, it becomes who we are. And, can, and I want to share with you that I am optimistic that in the next three years we will see a paradigm shift in what Zionism means to Israelis. And that secular Israelis can realize that what Zionism is about, it's not about, not only about Jews protecting them, it's about Judaism. And the reason why I'm optimistic about this is just because this is my life's work. <laughs> so I should be. <laughs> and what I'm exposed to in Israel, and some of you have seen this, when you came to visit in front, who you saw in front of Okay, so, <laughs> so... So that there is a new generation of Israelis. Israelis in their 20s, post-army, don't have that notion that their parents have. Judaism, who cares about it? Let someone else take care of that. Let's outsource Judaism. Give it to someone else. They're patriots in a strong country, but they feel like, as secular Israelis, they have what to say about their Judaism. They want the Judaism on their terms. The question is, could young Israelis in the 20s turn into a movement that will reshape the paradigm of Zionism. That's a, I don't know what the answer is, but this is the challenge. That was my spiel. Uh, first of all, Micha, thank you. Amazing, as always. Why don't we just take a few questions and then I'll close with one last question. So uh, if anyone has some questions, um, you look so familiar. <laughs> Micha, it does it work? Micha, it seems to me that you're talking about taking Zionism to the next level is what you're trying to say. And also that you're talking about and not or. That's right. Okay. So and not or and Ain Pratt as a way to make that happen. That's right. Now you say, let me say one thing. I think the first seven years of Israel had to be about survival. Had to be about building a strong state, a strong economy, strong military. It had to be about that. Now the question is, what is the next seven years going to be about? And that we accumulate the achievements of survival science. We continue to build strong economy, strong military. But that's that was that gave energy to the founding generation. I think our, this generation is going to have a new form of energy. And see, I feel like it's the founding generation of the next stage of Zionism. Now, this won't take, I mean, this year, it, it ain't probably decided that the 70th year of Israel is going to be about trying to promote the paradigm shift. But it won't take one year to do this. It will take a few years to do this. To realize that, hey, hey, uh, maybe, and, and you know what one of the results will be when secular Israelis feel like Judaism belongs to them. That Zionism is about their Judaism, not about only about survival, but about creating Judaism that works. One of, of the results would be is that the more Jewish Israelis, say there's a problem, Israelis feel like feeling Jewish means feeling religious, and they have an allergic reaction to anything religious because of the politicization of Judaism in Israel, so I'm not Jewish, I'm Israeli. But once you own your Judaism, you feel connected to your Jewish identity, to Jewish text, to your past, something else happens. 
to feel connected to other Jews that share those texts and those texts. I think this will also create a stronger bond between young Israelis and Jews around the world, including in music. Micha, on that question, you're uniquely positioned to be helpful here. You know, your dad, as we all know, is from Massachusetts, your mother's from Oklahoma, you know, you're Israeli and you're bicultural and fluent, obviously, in America as well as in English. So help us out on this one. When the Israeli government reneged on the Kotel deal, when the prime minister of the Jewish state reneged on the Kotel deal, many of us were super pissed off. Super pissed off. Many of us, a minority, but many of us, including me, did not want to do the Rosh Hashanah appeal to market this is not business as usual. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, Bashir and I always planned to make Aliyah after we retired, and I said I'm never moving to Israel if they don't fix this. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go to a Jewish state to be a second-class citizen. Mm -hmm. um, and not everybody felt that way, but many people felt that way. Talk to us about the issue of anger at, at being second-class citizens. Uh, how, how can we think about that in a more productive and constructive way? First of all, I completely understand the situation. And the majority of Israelis thought it was the wrong thing. That's the thing. In numbers, I would say, I never, I never, I never read polls. I'm sure 78 is what Israelis think Netanyahu did the wrong thing. But do you think that any of them will not vote for Netanyahu because of that? No. Because that thing he did wrong is not an important issue to us. So the majority of people agree with you, but the majority of passion is not with you. The orthodoxy in Israel is a minority of the people, but it owns a majority of the passion on this issue. And the asymmetry of passion will always win. So the question is not how we, you know, it's not about attacking the Chavidim. It's about creating new passion for their Judaism among Chilonim, among secular Israelis. Let's make that their most important issue. Now, here's how I understand social change among young people in Israel. I don't know if this is true. I really don't know if this is true. That people in Anger never works. It doesn't work. Anger is usually activists are angry. And anger, you know, is very loud when you hear about it, but it's not attractive. It's very hard to join an angry movement. Is it possible this is what we're trying to do in front to create idealists and activists that are not angry? To create metaknei olam that are not angry, that are attractive, that you want to join them, that you feel happy, and you, think you, want, to, you, you want what they're happy, and you want to join them. And I think that's I mean, and, and I know, I mean, I know it's very hard not to be angry when you're angry. <laughs> but I think if we want to change Israel, instead of attacking the Haredim, empower the Chilonim. And to empower the Chilonim means to try to create a new brand of Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam that's filled, I'm trying to create a better world, not because I can't stand this world, but because I believe in a better world. Because, you know, fueled by optimism. Now, I think those are campaigns that, that are most successful and have, and I mean, anger has a lot of effect, it's a short-term effect. Join it, you're angry, and you leave. If there is no, but if you want to have a 
the movement that gradually changes Israel, I think we have to search for the for the um, that flavor, that rare combination between tikkun olam and and not necessarily anger. Thank you. So I got the microphone for some uh, other questions. So we'll just go around, David. Yeah, I think Einprat is 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 great, but you're ultimately talking about maybe a thousand or maybe fifteen hundred graduates. I don't know right now. Could you address the extent to which Judaism is being injected more into the curriculum of secular Israeli schools? I know I I do have a cousin that's active in a movement like that, but I don't know how widespread it is. Policy. I don't know if I'm an expert in what we're doing about that, but I actually do think Ain't Five can make a difference because uh, it could. Uh, the, the question is, if moments like Ain't Five, the question is not how do you influence one thousand people? How do you influence two hundred thousand people through a thousand people? That's the question. Impact is measured not by the amount of people in a movement but by the impact of the sum of those people in the movement. That's the question. That's the great, that's the, that's the great enigma. Uh, in Israel, something very interesting is happening. There is programs, like Bidhi, that Hartman is involved in. Uh, there's a new program, I forgot his name, that Naftad, uh, the Ministry of Education, is trying to promote. And it's creating a reaction among secular Israelis that, oh, you're, you're imposing Judaism down our throats. And again, they make the following assumption. If we have an allergic reaction to religion, and Judaism is a religion, we don't want Judaism. So there's a fact here that since Orthodoxy owns Judaism in Israel, any attempt to educate secular people about Judaism is met with the allergic reaction to Orthodoxy. And the, so I don't know if the edu so so there is a problem here, and the only way to solve this problem is to get a complete paradigm shift, to realize that we have to reverse that ancient deal that we said, rabbis will deal with, Judea with Judaism, we will deal with Jews, with an economy, military, will be Hertzel, will be about Jews, you'll be about Judaism, to reverse that deal. To move to a Chada Am Zionism, to make Israel about Judaism, a place where a new. Can you imagine how interesting it is? Israel, I don't want to sound judgmental, but progressive liberal Judaism has problems here in the United States. Is that judgmental? Okay. <laughs> has problems. Hopefully, God willing, it will overcome its problems and come out stronger. But today, has problems. And Israel is the only place in the world where this brand of Judaism, the best brand of Judaism, would have continuity. Would have a great future. And the only place in the world where that is, where you don't have real progressive liberal Judaism is in Israel. So the only place where maybe today, it seems like, where progressive Judaism has a future is a place where it doesn't have a present. This is something that is, is so there, this is something that, that could change and needs to change, and it's a result of Hamzik Zionism becoming the dominant paradigm for Zionism. It's not Hamzik's fault, it's Hitler's fault. It's because the Jews feel under threat because they're under threat. It's not just a weird paranoia. 
When Jews feel that they're under threat, the first thing you ask is, how do you protect the Jews? Let me, so treason is someone else's. Yeah, it's, it's similar, David. It's it's. Uh, can you say a little more about the results in some of the young Jews that have come to Ain Prat? Have you seen secondary ripples mm -hmm. into the populations uh, as a result of what they experienced and how they changed at Ain Prat? Yeah. So they, I would say, how do you know if something works? If something is a um, there is a, a a model that we're trying to develop. It's called charismatic communities. Israel was never changed because of charismatic individuals. It's always been changed by charismatic communities. Uh, when I'm thinking about charisma, I'm thinking the way Max Weber described charisma. One person that people subconsciously try to imitate, and as a result, the entire group embodies the personality of that one person. Israel has never, never changed this way. It's always changed because of charismatic groups. Like, for example, the kibbutz movement in the 1950s was about a percent, percent and a half of the Israeli population. But all Israelis were looking at the kibbutz movement and inspired by the kibbutz movement and subconsciously imitating kibbutz thinking. And a small group gave an entire country its character. When I was in high school, there was a kibbutz in my class. And he was speaking with a lisp. And I did everything I can to have a lisp, too. Because I thought that was so Israeli, so real. All I wanted to do was like wear sandals and be tough and be a kibbutznik and be, yeah, and speak like this because, yeah, because that was, that's charisma. It's not a charisma of it, of the group. Within the Haredi community, there's a very small minority that studied Torah every day, all day. But all Haredim admire them, look at them, try to imitate them, and that small group gives a character to the entire group. High-tech Israel today is a small group that Israelis admire high-tech Israel. They want to dress like them, look like them. So we have, I think that's how Israel changes, not because of charismatic individuals, but because of charismatic groups, communities. Knowing this, theory of change needs to be, let's cultivate charismatic groups. Charismatic groups, let's say of secular Israelis, they're passionate about their Judaism, that practice Judaism without necessarily being religious, and make that attractive. Make people want, you know, so, so that's, so, so there's two ways to have a change, either individuals that do things or groups that have impact. So, I, I mean, change happens in mysterious ways. But um, in cultivating charismatic groups, I think what we're trying to do in Israel looks promising. Uh, Steve Buckwinder. It's an interesting theory, anyway. Um, the Acharam uh, Herzl argument is largely an Ashkenazi argument. That's right. Um, the majority of people are from Mizrahi backgrounds. Interestingly, as you look at the social science, too, many Israelis don't define them, a, a minority define themselves as Chiloni, as truly secular. Um, a much larger percentage define themselves as Masorti. Um, and are willing to go along with, you know, some of the aspects of the rabbinate. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this argument proceeds in the Mizrahi community and what the Masorti movement really, the Masorti designation in Israel really represents? Because it isn't secular. So this is an important question that um, many 
of the conversations and the, the, the stories, the narratives, the ideas that shaped the awareness of the founding fathers of Zionism come from Europe. But the largest wave of immigration to Israel came from <coughs> Morocco, Libya, Iraq, Kurdistan. That's where massive. So we have Jews coming from non-European countries that people try to understand them using European categories. And that's a source of a lot of misunderstandings in the history of Israel. And that's why this is a very, very important question. Let me just point out that, that uh, what does it mean to be Masoti? It's a different kind of identity. This is not, doesn't mean to be conservative Jew. I, I know conservative movement calls themselves the Masoti, but the majority of Israelis who call themselves Masoti doesn't mean to be card-carrying members of the conservative movement. It means that they shaped their understanding of Judaism in Arab-speaking countries, in Muslim countries. They have a different understanding of Judaism. And this is a very, a lot is written about this, and it's very interesting. I'm going to say something very, you know, this is, uh, in a very tight way. Um, for Ashkenazi Jews, the guiding category, when you think about Judaism, in Israel, we think of Judaism is about obedience. There is these ancient laws that were commanded to obey them. All these laws, all the halach, has great authority. It comes from God or from rabbis or inspired by God. And we obey them. What's the alternative to obeying something? Rebelling. I'm not, I'm not under the control of tradition. I'm a liberated person. I'm sovereign. So that's the, that's the all or nothing game that Ashkenazi play in Israel. Either you're controlled by tradition or you are liberated from tradition. But Salim come in and say, listen, this dichotomy is not our dichotomy. We have a different category, not of obedience, but of a different category. It's not about obeying tradition. It's about loyalty to the category. I'm not obeying the past. I'm not submitting myself to the authority of the past. That's not what I'm doing. I'm loyal to the past. It's about loyalty. Loyalty is a more flexible category. You express loyalty sometimes through, I'm loyal. Thousands of years, Jews had Shabbat. So I'm going to express my loyalty to Shabbat through Kiddush of Shabbat. Until I get in the car and go to the soccer game. I'm not obeying the law of Shabbat. I'm expressing my loyalty to Jews in last generations that were always loyal to that Shabbat. So loyalty is an important category that breaks the Ashkenazi dichotomy. And I think when Israelis will think about Chada'am, Zionism, they might find a lot of inspiration in Masoti Judaism. Uh, Brent, you had a question. Maybe you could help me understand how you might see not only movement on the secular side of Israelis, but from the Orthodox. And I think back to 1973, when I was there and I heard from secular Jews who had fought that the Orthodox in many cases, and I don't mean knitted kippahs, I mean real Orthodox battalions, were highly functional. And in, in essence, were in those days an integral part of the Israeli army, and there was it was supported. 
And at the same time, most recently, the Satmar Rebbe called the president of the Technion to thank him for having a prototypical program to take very orthodox Jews and bring them into the pathway towards engineering by preparing them and getting them involved. And as the Satmar Rabbi thanked the president of the Technion for doing this, he allowed that his own son wanted to be a, an Air Force pilot. So the question is, are the, is there more than just the question of the uh, relatively unaffiliated Israelis moving towards Judaism? Do you also see the possibility that the Orthodox can move towards uh, the roles that were just outlined as being sort of a compromise between rigid orthodoxy and an orthodoxy that has purpose and economic bearing in the future Israel. It's a very important question. Wes, is this the last question? No, uh, no keep going. Okay. Um, <coughs> within ultra-orthodox Israel, something very interesting is happening. Are you aware of the protests of Haredim of ultra-orthodoxy in Jerusalem the past few weeks? There were that very violent protests in Jerusalem. And, and um, the Haredi world in Israel is going through the most interesting process. You have close to 900,000 Haredi in Israel. And secular Israelis, when you look at Haredim, they see just one big homogeneous group. That's, by the way, the way Haredim look at secular. They're all the same. They all live in Tel Aviv for some reason. <laughs> oh, they're in the beach all day. And you look at the... So, and, but when you go dive deeper into the Haredi community, you realize this is a very heterogeneous community. Divided into three tribes, different tribes. Lithuanian tribe, which is about a third, roughly a third. Hasidish tribe. And Mizrahi Sfaradi tribe. And they have different educational systems and they will not marry each other. Those are separate tribes. They're real Jews. They don't marry, they, 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 they hate each other. <laughs> so we see them as one group, it's us against them. No, if you go in there, their main issue is great separation. These are like real, there's a lot of conflict there. Different educational systems, different kashrut systems. You know what it means? And I follow one kashrut, I'm a Haredi, and the other kashrut, it means I can't leave your house. Different kashrut systems, different shidduch systems, different educational systems, different political parties representing them. There's three political parties representing Haredi. Shas, Mitzvahadim, and then in the, um, within Degel Torah, there's actually two parties, one Aguda representing Hasidim, and the second Degel, the Lithuanian Haredi. So we're talking, first of all, it's a very diverse world. Now what's interesting is it's even more diverse because within the Lithuanian world, you have now the majority that want to integrate more into Israel, which means join the workforce, finding ways to join the workforce. Some find ways to join the army. This group is the majority of Lithuanian Haredi. But you never heard of them, you know why? Because there is a minority of Lithuanian Haredim that are very loud. And you, don't, you never hear the people that are the majority. You only hear the people that have passion. They have a voice. Now, they might, now by the way, so the, the majority of Lithuanian Haredim are led by a very young, promising rabbi. 
He's 104. Steinemann, he lives in Mayburg. And his opposition, he's real youth. He's 95 or something. He's, lives in Jerusalem. And they all have different newspapers. And, and, they, and, and again, they won't marry each other. They won't, yeah, there's no, and this is within, the, within one tribe. It's got, now lately, only the past years, divided into two. And the conflict between them is about how much can it integrate into Israel. And the, um, the uh, Jerusalemite Haredim, the people who are against integration, now they are not only against integration into Israel, they're against the Haredim that are for integration into Israel. You see, now they have a big battle. And every time you hear in the news that the Haredim in Israel becoming more fanatic, more close-minded, you should know something. That's not the real thing. That's the reaction to the real thing. The reaction to what's happening. You'll always assume that the reaction to what's happening is what's happening. But they're the reaction. They're fighting to keep things the way they used to be. So yes, Haredi community in Israel is changing. And we haven't seen nothing yet. We haven't seen nothing yet. I'm in touch with many young Haredim. Internet changed so much. Internet has changed the Haredi community. And they're exposed to the world, they're exposed to new ideas. They, they, they want, and, and there's young Haredim that want to do two things. They want to open to the world, be a part of Israel, and stay Haredim. They want to figure that out. And I think there'll be a tremendous contribution to Israel when they find a way to integrate to Israel. Amos Oz had a great observation a few years ago. He said, the last wave of immigration to Israel, the last Aliyah to Israel, was from Russia. The next Aliyah to Israel will be from Bnei Brak. <laughs> That's the next Aliyah to Israel. And we have to find a way, and I'll tell you something, so I tell my students. And the way to cultivate this, the way to cultivate this, is not to be anti-Haredi. See, what happens, a Haredi comes to, to, to a workplace and interviews for a job. And, um, uh, the person interviewing him looks at him and he realizes this is bad news and he comes to work in our place. Next day, he'll want all the women to dress differently. We'll have you know, pictures of rabbis all over the place. <laughs> you know what? You didn't get the job. Because Israelis really want Haredim to join the workforce. We think it's a great idea that Haredim finally go find jobs. Just not. <laughs> in our workplace. But they should, really, it's not, they should join the workforce. But I'll never give them a job. Because, you see, and which creates the paradox that, you know, hatred of Haredim is a very common Israeli sport. And it's, by the way, all of as someone observed, part of being tolerant is accepting difference. In Israel, you're only tolerant if you really hate Haredim. <laughs> really being tolerant. So that's just me being a little bit cynical. Now I tell, but see, we hate Haredim because they don't work, but then they don't work because we hate them. So to, if we really want to help this population great to Israel, we have to overcome our anti-Haredim sentiments. And it's hard. It's built in. It's in the genes of Israelis, and, and not your only Israelis. 
And it's something, so, so, uh, so yes, I think the few, I'm very optimistic about secular Israelis owning their Judaism, creating Israelis, becoming a part of Israelism. I don't know how long this double process is going to take, but it's obviously also linked to each other. Michal, I'm going to just take the liberty of asking the last question, which is actually a bridge to our next big event, which is, uh, as you know, and as we know, our community has been working through the issue of interfaith marriage and whether conservative clergy should be able to officiate at interfaith marriage. And there is a rabbi named Amichai Lau Levi, who was ordained recently by the seminary, who is already expelled from the conservative movement and from the rabbinical assembly because he wrote this uh, proposal, Joy, where he explains his reasons for performing intermarriage. And um, he's a former conservative rabbi, having just been ordained because of his position saying yes to intermarriage. And he's coming to our shul on Thursday night. Uh, he's going to be here at 8 o'clock to talk about why he does intermarriage. And his last name is Lau Lavi, Amichai Lau Lavi. And his family comes from Israel. And I was wondering if you could share the story. It's a Holocaust story. It's an Israel story, the Lau Lavi story, so that we have some context for this iconoclastic and very creative original thinker. So first of all, Amichai is a friend of mine. Very smart, very creative. I highly recommend he come visit. And Amichai comes from a family of rabbis, and he's a descendant of rabbis, which are descendants of rabbis, all the way back to the first rabbi ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dynasty, it's a world. Some people say that, that the Laos are the Kennedys of the rabbis. These are the Laos. And uh, his uncle was the chief rabbi of Israel. He signed the Laos, who wrote a book called Artishlach of which was a very bestseller in Israel, and tells his life story. And his life story is that, well, I didn't read the book. <laughs> but I read the back of the book, and I'll try to, I'll try to take it from there. But just so you know, <laughs> so I forgot exactly the story. But Yisrael made his older brother, Naftali Lavi. Naftali Lavi changed his name later on to Lavi. And I think he was Auschwitz, but... Buchenbaum, thank you. Um, was took care of his younger brother, protected his younger brother, saved his younger brother. They went to Israel. Years later, the sign named Lau becomes the chief rabbi of Israel. The sign named Lau is like, in Israel, he's like the icon of the possibilities from destruction to redemption, where against all odds, you make your life happen. I would say he's the closest thing Israel has to an Arab Israel. As he said, his older brother, Naftali Lavi, the guy who saved Israel, the, the chief rabbi, the, the chief rabbi, is the father of Anichai. He's the father of Anichai that's coming this Thursday. And he himself also has a great story. He was a spokesman of Moshe Dayan. He was a spokesman of Moshe Dayan, and Moshe Dayan himself is a I would say, think that Naftali Lavi represents the Jew that comes from the Holocaust. Moshe Dayan is the new, brave Israeli Saba. And they were very close to each other. And he was with Dayan, I think, in the times after Yom Kippur War. 
when you see Dayan has an amazing biography. After the Six-Day War, Dayan was an Israeli hero. After 73, he was the Israeli villain. Nobody. And then Menachem Begin in 77 went to Dayan and made Dayan Ministry of, of the Secretary of Sarachutz, the um, foreign minister. And then Dayan was the one who paved the way to Camp David, the peace of Egypt. And this whole trail of Tali was with Dayan. So you have an amazing story of a person that saved his younger brother in Buchenwald and comes to Israel and becomes a spokesman of Dayan. And he, and he has, I think, four children of Tali Lalavi. I'm friendly with two of them, with Belal and Amichai. And they're both rabbis, both important rabbis. Benilau is an important modern Orthodox rabbi in Israel, very innovative within the boundaries of the Orthodox world. And Amichai comes here and he pushes the boundaries of American Judaism. Very comes from an important story, and it seems like he's trying, he's thinking about how how the legacy of the family is not only about the past, it's also about trying to create new options for the future. Thank you, Mila, so much. Just, um, the last word I would say is that this movement that Micha has created, uh, Aim Prat, every year when we go to Hartman, we meet these alumni. I believe there are 2,500 Aim Prat alumni. And if you ever want to be inspired and believe in the Jewish future and the Israeli future and the new future for a new Judaism in Israel, come and meet his alumni. Thank you so much. <laughs>